welcome to episode 123 of Ricochet's Law Talk podcast. We are coming to you, as always, from the faculty lounge of the Ricochet University School of Law, where the plans for a Greenland satellite campus are already underway. And this episode is the start of a new era for the show. We are now a production of the Hoover Institution at Stanford University, where we all have ties. Richard's a senior fellow there. John's a visiting fellow now. I've been the Palo Alto podcast monkey for a while. Uh, So we want to thank Hoover and also let you know that as a listener, the only thing that's going to change for you is no more commercials, which is great because now we can finally put some distance between us and the rumors that were in the pocket of Big Mattress. I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter and nine-time daytime Emmy viewer, and I am joined, as always, by the alien and predator of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, Lawrence A. Tisch, professor of law at NYU, senior lecturer at the University of Chicago, and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and former deputy assistant attorney general in the Bush administration. All right, fellas. Well, it is an August tradition in the faculty lounge that we take questions from our listeners on on this episode, though I also feel empowered to ask you things with absolutely no news hook. I've got some of those coming later, but the first thing that I'm going to put to you is whether we should buy Greenland. The Wall Street Journal ran a story yesterday reporting that this is something that President Trump has brought up to his staff multiple times. And I specifically want to know on this show, what would be the the legal constraints here? I mean, Thomas Jefferson famously twisted himself in knots about whether the Louisiana purchase was constitutional. So, John, this is tailor-made for you. Walk me through this as a legal matter. Good luck, John. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll buy, I've written a lot about Jefferson and the Louisiana purchase, a lot about by the way. <laughs> Not much about Greenland. I have written about Greenland because in World War II, FDR basically ordered the occupation of Greenland because, yes, it's a very little use to Denmark. It's basically ungoverned. It's an autonomous territory. Denmark's too tiny, too far away. So basically the Greenlanders run it themselves. But it is of strategic importance. If you look at the map, you have to control Greenland if you want to escort convoys across the Atlantic. And so when World War II, even before we entered World War II, FDR actually sent troops to occupy Greenland. And at that time, actually, I think we made an offer to buy Greenland for $100 million, which was probably $99.9 million more than the land was worth back then. But so I think under international law, uh, international law formally uh, doesn't recognize, although I think this is uh, such a loss for mankind, but it doesn't recognize conquest anymore. So the idea is that countries can't use force to acquire territory. Uh, This land's already been discovered, so it's not like the United States could claim this is terra incognita and didn't belong to anybody. And so uh, you'd have to get some kind of agreement or consent from Denmark in order for the United States to acquire Greenland. Now, that doesn't mean the United States couldn't operate there rent-free you know, I mean, the only country that really could control the territory there and uh, use it for those bases is the United States. And the United States, you know, sort of has a wherewithal to basically take it away. But if they want to have essentially title to it, possession of the land, the United States is going to have to pay and get uh, Denmark to consent. Or we could do something. This is an idea. See, I'd be really good at New York real estate. Here's an idea. We could do something <laughs> like what they did in World War II 
when the British really needed some destroyers. And uh, we, yeah, so we said, okay, Churchill, here's 50 destroyers. And in exchange, you lease us these little islands in the Caribbean for 99 years. And so we could always just rent Greenland for like a hundred year lease. I don't know. Richard's the expert on this. I don't know how long a lease can go on for, but well, why not? Hundred. This is essentially what we do with Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. We rent Guantanamo Bay from Cuba. It's a perpetual lease, and you need the consent of both sides to terminate it. So maybe we don't need, actually need to physically own Greenland in order to have the full use of it. Well, let me tell you what I first thought of when I heard this story. I thought that Donald Trump wanted to buy Greenland for his personal use and establish a resort there. <laughs> so I was not thinking in terms of sovereignty. I was thinking in terms of a slight form of megalomania that even our current president doesn't seem to possess. Now, the question about you know the purchase of it, I think John left a couple of things out. I do think that this is not something that could be negotiated solely between the United States and Denmark. There are, I don't know how many thousands of people that are on the island of Greenland, and I think that anytime you want to change sovereignty, some degree of a referendum in order to make sure that this thing was done correctly would probably indicate it. And I'm sure that they would not be particularly indicate uh, willing to become part of the America. In terms of the lease there, two things. One is there's no upper bound on the time of any particular lease, 99 years, 100 years. If you recall, the lease on Hong Kong, a rather important place today, started in about 1841 or two and ended in about 1997, and nobody thought it was in ballot. There are some wonderful cases in Oxford where there was a lease for about 700 years, which started in about 1275, and then it had to be renegotiated between two colleges as it was coming to an end, and nobody thought that the term of the lease made it illegal. They just thought that made it kind of funny that something which seemed to be a fee simple did not in fact go on forever. Uh, so I do think that you can negotiate a long lease. You'd never do it of the whole island. What you would do is you would negotiate a lease with respect to the naval and air bases that you'd start to want and pay a pretty penny. I think the uh, Greenlanders will be less offended by this than perhaps the people in the Philippines and so forth, uh, where these leases have been difficult. I can see that happening. Uh, I don't know whether or not the Danes would want to do this formally. It all depends upon what you think to perfect the, the, the threats to be. I actually take the Russian threat reasonably seriously. It's not that they're a serious uh, power in terms of their GDP. Um, they're about the size of Italy, maybe even smaller, and that tells you a lot. Um, but they're particularly obnoxious about the way in which they want to use their power. And Putin will take advantage of any situation where he sees a void or a weakness in order to increase the expression of Russian power. And this might be a very nice kind of preemptive arrangement. And I, I think, in fact, that it, it certainly could be done. I hope to heaven we don't have the kind of war that we're worrying about. But I don't think Greenland at this, at this particular point has the importance of the Gulf of Hormez, where, in fact, serious issues are about to brew. So I would say this is not likely to happen as a single grand transaction. I would not be surprised if there was some a more modest arrangement, shuffling money and people and personnel and property around that might work to the mutual advantage of all the parties, Greenlanders. And Can I point out, though, that this shows that Donald Trump believes in global warming? Because if you believe in global warming, Greenland is going to be a lot more valuable when it gets hot than when it gets cold. <laughs> I used to be called Greenland, after all, for some reason, right at some point before well, it, it turned green. 
Um, if you, you know, this is kind of funny, but yes, when Leif Erikson came to Labrador, it was a green territory, and the general explanation for the change had nothing to do with carbon dioxide. It had to do with the change in the path of the Gulf Stream, which took it away from the coast around Labrador and sent it through the mid-Atlantic. Uh, Richard, how in the hell do you know that? Did you just look that up on Google? Come on, no, you don't no, know just, stuff about the jet stream. Uh, and, and remember, London is the same latitude. It's about 51 degrees north. And it just shows you what the overall power is under these things. Actually, there's a huge debate about Greenland going on now. No, and, <laughs> between like three people. There's a serious debate about what sort of an indicator it is with respect to global warming. And oh. so the, the people who are in fact, look, the global warming stuff is, to my mind, highly overrated, to put it mildly. And what somebody pointed out, you see uh, Greenland obviously is coming apart because they're calving various um, little icebergs and so forth off of it. But on the other hand, the explanation for why they're calving is that the glacier is expanding and as parts of it start to be pushed out to sea, they become more vulnerable to the elements and they start to break off. And I have seen a map. And the map is pretty clear that at least in certain of the fjords, uh, the ice is moving further north, not further south. Which shows you one of the things you got to understand. I'm going this is the end of my global warming speech. Is global warming is posited as a uniform phenomenon because the carbon dioxide is uniformly distributed. If you actually look in the polar area or in the um, Antarctic, it turns out some places are expanding, some places are contracting, and that means that local forces have to have a far greater role. Uh, than any See, this, is, this is something that can bring the country together because Democrats should be in favor of buying Greenland since they think global warming's happening. So they should all be this proves their point that they'd be making. So, you're, so wait, just to, just to get this straight, John, you're saying that finally we've reached the moment of political fusion between the climate change crowd and the manifest <laughs> destiny crowd. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, we I was, should also think about taking over Canada again. Like, you know, we haven't done it, tried again. We haven't tried since the War of 1812. But, you know, Canada, all that real estate is going to become valuable, too, if it gets hot. I would go full MAGA if we got Greenland. I do, I do not want to be in the first generation where America does not add a state. All right, let me move you on to actual audience questions. There was actually a big discussion, so detailed, in fact, that there's no way for me to concisely quote from it, that was started by Ricochet member and Law Talk superfan, I should note, Jerry Giordano in Tucson, asking you guys to weigh in on what has seemed like an epidemic recently <laughs> of nationwide injunctions coming down from lower courts. Justice Thomas complained about this last year in the, I think in the Trump v. Hawaii case. And actually we just got another example of this earlier today because you had the Ninth Circuit smack down a trial court that had issued a nationwide injunction against the administration's new asylum policy where you have to apply from outside the country. The Ninth Circuit didn't totally pull that back, but they did say that the injunction could apply only within the jurisdiction of the trial court. So, uh, Richard, I'll let you start on this one. Do we have clear parameters around where and when district courts can take this kind of sweeping action? And, and what would a good system look like? Well, the answer to both questions is it's a hard world. Um, on the first question, these are district courts of the United States located in states. Uh, but since they're United States courts, they're not like state courts, and they, in fact, at least have 
theoretically jurisdiction to issue a decree that will bind anybody in the United States. And indeed, there's some people who believe that they may even have jurisdiction to bind American officials who are overseas, even though they're not within the territories, a more controversial proposition. Uh, so I think it's certainly clear that you can do it. The problem about doing this is it does create a huge amount of, uh, shall we say, gamesmanship. If you know that guns are not very popular in Southern California and you want to have a nationwide injunction which covers Texas, you don't go to Texas where the guns are. You go to California where the anti-guns people are. Hope that you get yourself a better district court. Hope that you might get yourself even a better circuit court and then go in for the kill. Uh, the response is going to be not only to fight the injunction, but for somebody on the defensive side to try to go into another jurisdiction and see if they can take over that particular case by filing first or requiring what is sometimes called a transfer motion and a consolidation motion, where you move different cases that are talked about in the same dispute uh, to a single court to be resolved, and you have some discretion to make sure that it's not a truly partisan court. And this is all the heart. So what are the methods that you kind of deal with this stuff? Well, I think the probably you ought to have a fairly strong presumption uh, that any particular district court can only have power to issue injunctions with respect to the circuit in which that particular court sits, which is not the same as the state. And the reason is because they're going to be immediately reviewed by some kind of a circuit court, and you could get some limits on this. The downside with that is you get inconsistent treatments in different circuits, and then uh, you're going to either have a crazy national policy or you're going to have to go to the Supreme Court. So the one thing I think that everybody now should agree upon is if you're a trial court and you issue one of these grand injunctions, say a nationwide one, uh, the next thing that you want to do is to make sure that there's an appeal that can be decided uh, within 15 or 30 days. Also, I'm generally in favor of a rule which says you could go right to the appellate court if it's been joined against you and get them to put a stay on the injunction until somebody else inside the system has a look at the thing. And, and also the Supreme Court, if it turns out this is a serious problem, they can try to expedite review, although God knows what's going to happen if this happens during the summer when all the judges are away on break deservedly, of course, uh, from their usual arduous duties. So it's a chronic problem. The older sentiment was the way you handle it is you have a certain degree of prudence and a sense of commitment to policy and process. But once you got <laughs> Donald Trump... Oh, Richard. <laughs> but now We've once you have... we on those days. Oh, yeah, that's the whole point. One of the things that people like Trump do is they tend to polarize, but let's... Fair is fair. Uh, the clowns, I mean, the Democrats on the other side are every bit as extreme. The difference about them and Trump is that Trump tends to make it perfectly clear by wearing his enthusiasms on his sleeve, while the Democrats always try to cover it up with a patina of intellectuality, which is usually about a millimeter thick. <laughs> John, what's, what's your reaction on this question about the injunctions? It doesn't make sense as a sort of rational way to run a legal system. Uh, you know, it does have a lot to do with the traditional uh, deference we give to plaintiffs to choose where they want to sue. But, you know, for the government, it should really just, I think the answer is really just to have most challenges to government policy centralized in one specific court. That's the way it used to work. So uh, putting aside these challenges to the Trump administration all over, or remember the challenges to Obamacare uh, were similar. It used to be the case that if you wanted to challenge uh, regulation, you would have to go uh, to the D.C. Circuit, and you would actually bring it what was called a pre-enforcement challenge. And so the D.C. Circuit became very uh, quite centralized, but also quite expert in, re in reviewing administrative regulations, because 
Uh, one thing, you know, Richard emphasized sort of the disorganized nature of it, it's spread all over. You can use the choice of the court for uh, tactical advantage, you know, trying to find the most friendly judge. This is why most of the challenges to the Trump administration are being taken in actually Hoover's backyard in the Northern District of California. Uh, but it also leads to, I think, a higher rate of error because you're going to be bringing these cases to judges you're picking all over the country, it's likely the ones who are outside Washington or are probably not as expert in administrative law. And so you see, actually, I think a lot of these cases that are being brought out in California or even Texas are getting reversed on appeal or at the Supreme Court. Whereas the way it was before is a lot of these cases would go to the D.C. Circuit and the Supreme Court actually became much more, I think, deferential to the D.C. Circuit's rulings on administrative law, and the, and the D.C. Circuit kind of became the administrative law court. I think that would be uh, the best thing to do. Now, the, I, th I think that the way the Supreme Court could solve that, you don't need to pass a law. I think the Supreme Court saw that somewhat in the way Richard discussed is just to say, look, an injunction by a federal district judge only goes as far as the territory of his or her court. So, yeah, you could bring these cases against the Trump administration in San Francisco, but if that San Francisco court rules against you, that regulation is, is no good only in the district court of San Francisco and would still go on in the rest of the country. I think that would cause people to have to go directly to Washington. And I think that would be the best, I mean, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican who's in office. I have one comment about that. I've been writing a book, as, as Troy knows, on the dubious morality of the modern administrative state. And one of the things Really? I, wait, 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 wait. You're writing a book about the dubious morality of the administrative state? Yeah, it's already done, Mr. Oh, what's you, the you, title? What's the title? That's the title. It turns out it's the dubious morality of the administrative state. <laughs> Come on, you got to have something catchier than it's that. A, it's a think tank time. book, John. It's, it's coming out through <laughs> the Manhattan on. Institute, which is why I know about it. <laughs> but no, one of the things I mean, that you, you like, do do is... she said or something. Like, <laughs> the, well, I mean, it's a pun on... Two things. There was a famous book by Lon Fuller called "The Morality of Law," and then Cassandra also a, a Adrian, title. Let me add, uh, and I, <laughs> a book which been, it's been incredibly influential. Modesty, John, may not suit you, but for more serious and sober <laughs> think it's the only way to go. Um, and then there was a. Is it on books on tape? If it's not on books on tape, I didn't listen. To well, it. no, not yet. But um, I, I know you can't read, John. But <laughs> wow. So Actually, we should have Richard yeah. do the book on tape. It'll be 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is that there was an article by Cass Sunstein and Adrian Buell called The Morality of the Administrative State. And, you know, we tend to see somewhat differently. So I don't think it's particularly a strong morality. But one of the areas that you start to review is the constant struggle over nuclear power, where virtually all of those cases were concentrated in the District of Columbia Circuit. And, you know, you had the fear ho four horsemen of the 1970s, Skelly Wright, Baslin McGowan, oh, there's one other, oh, and uh, Harold's, oh, whatever his name was. He died in 1970. Lasky. No, not Lasky. He died in the 30s. <laughs> it was, uh, but anyhow, we'll, there was a fourth we'll guy. He died in 1914 to 1979. Sorry, Jacobson, I can't remember. But anyhow, those guys single-handedly dismantled the entire nuclear power industry. Because every time they found an objection, and then they, and then they died from the radiation, radiation, uh, no, just like in the Chernobyl show. Old age, unfortunately, was what uh, took him. Jacobson, I think, was the fourth judge, and you know, 
So you get cases, the most famous reprise on this is a case called Vermont Yankee decided in 1978 in which Justice Rehnquist in a really personal opinion said, you guys are not allowed to make this law up and you cannot add extra procedures in in order to slow the train down. And it was really, it was an extremely strong rebuke of everything that had gone on below. And that was completely effective for about six months. And then the D.C. Circuit, when left to its own devices, found other ways to sew this particular process up. So uh, there's a mixed kind of blessing. It's always a problem. And it's just an eternal problem of the law. You concentrate everything in one district and you draw a bad hand, God help you. If you spread it all around, you get so much inconsistency and, and uncertainty, uh, you have to do it the other way. So it's one of these things in which if you had people back to then had a sense of comedy and trust, it might work. Uh, but that seems to be pretty much gone today. And that's why the problem is so much harder, because if there's no social constraint on the way in which judges start to do their work and lawyers start to pick their jurisdiction, any legal rule is going to be worse than it is in an area where we have some degree of cooperation, some set of shared norms and expectations. Do you want the four horsemen of the Supreme Court? No, it's not the four horsemen of the Supreme Court. It's of the of the D.C. Circuit. Oh, well, I can't. That, that I can't like Google Basilon. fast enough. They're going to have to move on. You mean Basilon, um, Steli Ray, Lowenthal, and uh, one other guy. Yeah. <laughs> Between the two yeah. of you. Somebody, somebody will put the fourth one in the comments. All right, That's I'm going gonna... to... I'm going to I'm going to move us on to the next one. John, I want to start with you on this because I, I know where Richard's going to go with this. This oh. is from uh, Ricochet member Rufus R. Jones, who asks Mark Levin says that Supreme Court terms should be 18 years instead of lifetime. Approvals would be less politically contentious this way. What is your opinion? Oh, interesting. So term limits for justices. Uh, yeah. That's been proposed many times over the years. There's actually a bunch of conservatives right now who are trying to mount uh, an effort. They've been going around getting letters. They probably asked Richard to sign. They asked me to sign their letter. I, I said no. Uh, you know, a lot of states, I think almost not all, but most states have these kinds of term limits. Uh, I, I understand why people want to have them. I don't know if it would really make a difference uh, in whether people are worried about the justices becoming too ideological or the Supreme Court appointments themselves becoming too uh, important. Uh, you know, if the question is we want to make the term 18 years because there are these justices who serve into their 80s, like um, the famous example is Brennan and Marshall, um, who serve well into these and before them, or uh, justices like John Paul Stevens today. I mean, you'd want to know, uh, and I'm willing to defer to Richard on this point, you wanted to know whether intellectual effectiveness declines in age. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so I actually think, you know, there's wisdom that actually increases with age. So it's not apparent to me that, uh, you know, only 18 years is really uh, the proper amount of time. It's sort of like, I think, I think there's some, isn't there some line in the Bible about how there's a, uh, a certain, you know, certain age, you know, which mankind was fixed. It's sort of like, Four scores, and that's kind of what we're go that's why Lincoln started the Gettysburg Address that way. I think was because the Bible says so many score and so many years is sort of the natural lifetime of man. Well, I you know, people are living longer, and they're they're staying on, they, they're working longer, and their faculties are engaged longer, and you know maybe they're not as sharp and they can't remember cases, but you know old people seem to be pretty wise. 
So I, I, I wouldn't support some kind of 18-year limit. Also, we should just recognize, look, in the system we have now, we understand that justices have jobs for life. And so we should take that into account when we appoint them. And that, that may mean they're more important. The real problem, the, 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 the HC's important, but the real problem is that the Supreme Court itself has become more important than was originally intended. And that's why you see the craziness in the confirmation hearings. And that's why you see people wanting to limit their terms. It's not because of the inherent lifetime tenure of the position. And so the real cure, I think, this, this is a, a cure that you know, doesn't really fit the real diagnosis. The real diagnosis is the Supreme Court, we've allowed to become too powerful. We've allowed it to seize more and more control over contentious issues in our politics. You know, trying to meddle with the term limits is not really going to solve that problem. Well, I'm strongly in favor of the proposal. Really? Uh, oh, absolutely. I actually wrote something on it a long time ago. Um, you know, Richard, either- the, the age also, they usually combine it with a ceiling of 70 years old. Yeah, I, so that I, means you one can't the serve other. on the Supreme Court now. Well, I mean, I, that's fine by me. I, could you imagine <laughs> a man who would be nominated by neither party? <laughs> right. I was, was going to say, John, I, that's 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 what we that, refer to as overdetermined. That, you know, it gives me he know, he'll, he'll all the more comfort in the soundness of my reviews is that nobody in this particular situation shares them. But that's no, not no, what it's I, about. I want to bring people together. You'd be like the Greenland. I would. Uh, I guess judicial appointment. I'd be, I'd be the Greenland. <laughs> Anyhow, the green light. No, let me say. Look, I I do think there's a quite a, not a senility problem in some cases. Yes, a decline problem. I also think there's a kind of a corruptibility problem. You sit there for too long, you lose touch with everything that's outside the Supreme Court, and after a while, instead of worrying about the effects that decisions have on the lives of real people, you worry about which particular Beltway decision or which particular Beltway gossip is going to think positively and negatively about you. The worst illustration of that was poor Harry Blackman towards the end of his career when he could barely do anything. He was so worried about the way in which he would be received in the press uh, that it actually did seriously affect his judgment. But in terms of this, I do think 40 years is too long. My own view is you basically said it was 18 years. Basically, that means a new justice every two years with the odd exception. People are going to start choosing people not in their late 30s, not in their 60s. They'll probably pick people in their late 40s to serve into their uh, mid to late 60s, which I think is just perfectly fine. I think mixing it up is probably pretty good because it stops you from getting real sort of strong coalitions forming that you can't move one way or another. It does, I think, reduce the pressure on the political process if you're fighting over 18 years instead of fighting over maybe 40 or 45 years. And by the way, we do this with respect to the tax court and with respect to the bankruptcy court, uh, the euphemistic Article One courts. Generally speaking, they seem to do pretty well. In Washington, you want to create a new court, forget trying to make it an Article Three court. Nobody seems to support it. So yes, I think it's a, a fine idea. I think it does require a constitutional amendment in order to achieve, uh, but it's one that, that I would support. There is a difficulty with respect to transition. What do we do with the folks who are on there? Uh, uh, what you know I- what, Richard? Let, let, let me stop you right there because one of our listeners sort of anticipating your position on this raised this. So I, I want you. I want to read this question to you All on right. this topic. This is from uh, a Ricochet member who goes by the handle of Miffed White Male, which is also what it says on my driver's license. He wrote, uh, "The problem with fixed, ter- fixed terms for Supreme Court justices is that it creates a predisposition for confirmation, or else enables gameplay. 
what if the Senate doesn't confirm? When someone is eventually confirmed, does their 18 years start at the time they take the oath, or is it shortened by the amount of time that it took to confirm them? If the first, then you're going to start having some time between justices. If the second, then a committee can, quote unquote, shorten the time in office of an ideologically questionable nominee, even if they ultimately confirm them. Fixed terms work for elected offices where you have a date certain take office, leave office because the voters choose with a one party nominates and another party has to consent procedure, fixed terms don't work. What do you say well, to that? I think neither do perpetual terms work. I mean, you know, each party always talks about the need for nine when it's their judges who's up for a justice sufficient. And everybody says, well, we could get along with eight though when the other guys is up. So you do exactly the same thing right now. And indeed we did have a gap with respect to these nominations just a couple of years ago before, um, after the death of Scalia and so forth. So, I mean, I, I, I think that's gonna happen. The answer is to which time does it go? It's perfectly clear the term begins at the time that you sit and not earlier. And then the political pressures are gonna be on both sides. And I think anybody who tries to stop somebody else his appointment, knowing that they can't shorten it, is going to be perceived as a spoiler if they go over the edge. Um, I, you know, just to give you an illustration, the Democrats behaved in what I thought was a deplorable fashion in the way in which they tried to sabotage the um, Brett Kavanaugh nomination. But I think, in fact, they paid for it because I think that's one of the reasons why they could not regain the control over the Senate, given the fact that they had been so extreme. And I think that kind of outburst that you start to see, like Rachel Maddow against my friend Steve Menashe, um, is also going to be very difficult for the Democrats and in the general election. But I basically have come to believe, unfortunately, uh, that the one thing you need to have, like Menashe has, in order to get yourself abused is intellectual distinction because the people on the other side don't want smart judges who disagree with them there. Uh, they would rather have stiffs or nobody at all. And so I think the political dimension is cast in stone, whether it's 18 years or 40 years. I think internally for the institution, you're better off with the shorter period of time. That's the rule I might add in every high court, everywhere else and around the world except ours. We should run a seminar, John and me, uh, entitled Blunders in the Original Constitution. It'd be a long seminar. It was in lots of topics, and one of them, I think, is lifetime terms of service on good behavior uh, for Supreme Court judges. It's probably true for lower judge courts, uh, justices, but it doesn't matter nearly as much under those circumstances because their power in terms of the ability to organize the law of any circuit court judge is maybe one-fiftieth or one-tenth at most of any Supreme Court justice. You know what? Let's do that as an entire show. We'll put that one on the books. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a breather here and insert one of my own questions because I'm just trying to do straight biography, but biography that's hopefully revelatory. So, John, I'll have you take this one first. Um, least favorite class in law school. What, what were you just bad at or uninterested in? Oh, that's easy. Roman Tax. law. <laughs> tax. No, no. Everyone. I bet if you polled most law students, it would be tax. And I was not different. Yeah, I hated tax, although I'm glad I took it. I mean, I just, but it was, I just hated tax. Um, most of the, I came away from it thinking most, of, a lot of our tax code makes no sense. It's just a lot of social engineering and meddling. Uh, and that I just came away, why don't we just, one of the best things we could ever do is have a flat tax because it would throw all the tax lawyers and accountants out of business. 
Well, I'm in Thank favor of the flat tax, and I've written multiple articles about it. But tax is one of the most wonderful subjects in the world today. Oh, I knew he was going to oh, do that. God, you've got to be kidding. Well, and what, not what only that, did look. You not like? What was your um, I, I, well, let me just begin. When I started teaching my first year, two no, years. No, as a student. As a student. I, as a student, I liked them all. Oh, come I, on. I knew not this like was how it was going to break. I mean, I, look, I'm like Will Rogers. I never found a legal subject I didn't like. <laughs> what? I never did. I mean, you know, I'm sorry if you have these kinds of attitudes towards it, but I thought each of them was a terrific subject in its own way. And when I teach, I try to teach subjects I've never taught before because I think they're you also – You know who you sound like, Richard? You sound what? like the princess at the end of Roman Holiday. Yes, in a Roman holiday, they ask her which country on your European tour did you like? And she said each country was special in its own way. But then she goes, "Rome, clearly Rome." Now, come on, you. There's a Rome for you. It's Roman law. That's your favorite. The other ones, by definition, are not his favorite. I had teachers who used to send me up the wall because I disagreed with them. Um, and, and so, you know, I mean, just take one example of a fine teacher, man named Harry Wellington, uh, dead oh, many years now. I had him too. I had uh, him teaching too. Label, and he, he, was he's a, a, he was a terrible teacher. Well, he would be worse by the time you got there, I suspect, John, um, <laughs> which is the way of all flesh. But, I mean, I sat there having studied labor law as part of tort law and contract law in England, had very decided views about how the system should be blown up. And Harry was essentially an internal tinkerer. He was a man who had taught the pioneered a course in legal process. And so when he taught labor law, instead of figuring out how the system should be organized substantively, do you do this by the board? Do you do it by arbitration? Do you go into a federal court or something of that? And I got my revenge, so-called, because in 1983, they had a session called uh, at the Law Journal there uh, in honor of the 50th um, anniversary of the New Deal. And uh, the Federal Society, then quite nascent, said they had one place at the table, and they called me up. It was a very nice man named Eugene Olofsky. And he said, are you willing to come? And I said, absolutely. And I decided to talk about labor law because it was going to give the anti-Wellington speech explaining why it was that the common law rules were much better than the statutory rules, uh, which provoked a uh, hysterical response. I think it's the only word that one can say by Jules Julius Getman, who was then at Yale and now in Texas. Uh, but that, the point is, when you take a course and you think everything is wrong about the instruction <laughs> in terms of its message, you then, in fact, have an academic agenda uh, that you keep going. So, no, 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 no. And I did teach my first semester. I taught estate planning. My second semester. What? I you liked estates too? And my third. Trust in estates? No, the estate planning, John. That's this the is the thing. most characteristic thing I've ever heard, Richard. As, as a think tank executive, the number of intellectuals whose accomplishments throughout their career turn out to be driven by vendettas from graduate school. Yeah, well, of course. It's well, it, amazingly it, hot. It, it, no, it's not vendettas. What it is is if you – you almost always you have to form your intellectual life in response to something that you find is, is just basically incorrect. And the labor law was the most pronounced illustration of that which I had when I was in law school. Because remember, this is in the 1960s, and people were still in the stage of accommodationists. The labor statutes were here to stay. How do we make them work better? That was Harry Wellington. That was my colleague, Bernie Meltzer. That was Ted St. Antoine. Um, there were a lot of people, Paul Weiler, all of whom were in that kind of school. And I just wasn't. 
And I thought it was extremely important to take the course from somebody who had a very different view so that when you decided that you were going to break from the ranks, it would do it. And it did it in 1983. And all of a sudden, there's a question of, well, will Richard Epstein want to sit on the Second Circuit? And I knew when I wrote that article in Labor Law about defending the yellow door contract, my short and inglorious judicial career was over before it began. The least revelatory piece of information ever to be disclosed on the Law Talk podcast. Richard <laughs> Epstein liked all of his courses. <laughs> okay. We um, we had a VIP pop into the questions. Powerline Steve Hayward, also your Berkeley colleague, John. Yes. And, and he asks, why, <laughs> why is John a closeted legal positivist? And what does Richard think of natural law jurisprudence such as Justice Thomas advocates? Now, John, I will let you go first here since you were slandered. But why don't we do this? We don't do an awful lot of legal theory on the show. So why don't you guys just start by defining these terms? Okay. <laughs> what does it mean to be like, a legal this positivist, like a John? a trick question. Because so, I'm not a closet legal positivist. I think I'm just sort of outright legal positivist. So a legal but they want to know what you want. Uh, yeah. So a legal, a legal positivist is essentially someone who thinks the only law that we recognize and enforce <laughs> are the ones that are enacted by legislatures or the people through constitutions, and that there's no uh, sort of unenumerated principles from outside the written document that we ever. So they're called positivists because right, it's the positive law, the law that's actively passed that, is, that we consider law. And then when uh, you know Steve asks his mischievous question, this shows you a lot about Steve, because he's just trying to get me and Richard to argue, like we need a question to do that. But he, you know, he's basically <laughs> what you're saying is he's saying is Richard is a natural law guy. So natural law or naturalized person thinks there are laws or rights that aren't written in the Constitution that still should be recognized and enforced. Uh, and so uh, it'll be a good example. Like in the Second Amendment cases, uh, we've talked about a lot on the um, podcast. If you are a uh, the the court there, interestingly, Scalia has often been accused of being a positivist, but in the end, he grounds the right to. Uh, the, I'm sorry, he grounds uh, the reading of the Second Amendment to create an individual right to arms is based in a uh, right unwritten right, not specifically sound in the Constitution, but he says has to be there, which is the right of self defense, and so that's an example of a non positivist approach actually because he said you know the principle actually comes from outside the constitution so steve you know i don't know why he's calling me a closet positivist i'm a positivist i am willing to i think read some natural law natural rights into the document so long as the uh people who wrote the constitution the the framers uh believed in it and used it as the context to understand what they were doing so i say yeah we can look at that stuff but only because it helps us understand the words that they used in the Constitution. But I wouldn't import something completely outside the text and bring it in. And I think Steve accuses Richard of doing that with a lot of his views on sort of economic liberty and economic rights. But I'll let Richard defend himself from that Accused. or maybe embrace it fully. I, I, I would have wrap thought his he arms around it. it. Well, uh, look, I have written so much about this particular topic. I, I really don't know where to begin. So 
naturally, I will begin with Roman law. Um, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> we just walked right into it. No. Well, you did because essentially the way in which the Roman law begins is this is not a judge-made law. It's a jurist-made law. And what Gaius and Justinian both begin with is the statement that there are certain kinds of principles of natural law that are then embedded into positive law. They then give you what the natural law principles turn out to be. And basically, they have to do with individual autonomy, the acquisition of property by possession, uh, the creation of a commons for certain kinds of resources like air and water, rules of contract and rules of tort with respect to self-defense. And they say these are common to all peoples over all time. And sure enough, if you actually do the anthropology in a rather sympathetic way, uh, Gaius nailed it. There is, in fact, an incredible amount of uniformity with respect to those issues. The positive law under this account comes in with respect to formalities. Uh, everybody agrees that you acquire land by first possession, but we disagree as to how you demarcate it, whether you use a deed, whether you put sticks at the corner of this stuff, whether you draw a yellow line in the sand, whether you get 10 witnesses and file some piece of paper and so forth. And the ceremonial side will, or formalities will be varied, but the underlying substantive rights are remarkably constant. And that turns out to be a fairly accurate account if you actually do a uh, law. So that's the first point. Is Then the question is, suppose you now do have a written statute. And what's the difference between natural law and positive law? Well, at this particular time, you're talking about the issue of enforcement, which John started to raise. And the most famous debate on that was between Lon Fuller, whom I've already mentioned in connection with the morality of law, and H.L.A. Hart. Hart was the positive, positivist, and Fuller was the natural law guy. And essentially, the Hart position was taken from John Austin and later Hans Kelsen, which is the only thing that counts as a law, which is that which is backed by the power of the state. And so you could have two propositions, one of which has been enacted and the other which is not. If you just read them and look at the text, you could never figure out which of them is the law because you don't have that. And there is certainly a huge deal of truth about that. Something you put into the legislative hopper is not a statute, even though once it's passed, it is a statute, even though the texts are exactly identical before and after passage. But there's a greater complication here, and there are two parts to it. One, John says, you don't read anything into a constitution which isn't there. That is completely false as a matter of legal history, and you don't have to go to the 20th century stuff with a living constitution. Uh, the major treatises on the 19th and early 20th century all dealt with constitutional law, and they all used the words police power in part of their title. Uh, that's von Tiedemann. Uh, that turns out to be Ernst Freund. Then it turns out to be Judge Cooley. Thomas Cooley. And these are very considerable individuals. And what it is, it said, well, the Constitution starts to give you some individual rights of speech, property, and so forth. But just because we give you property doesn't mean because you own a gun, you could shoot anybody you want and so forth. And just because we believe in freedom of contract doesn't mean that we're going to allow conspiracies to kill and so forth. And so the police power became the compendium of justifications that you had for limiting the liberties that were found and protected either by statute or in the Constitution. And sure enough, this is a huge topic, um, and everybody recognizes that you have to have it in some way or another, and there's absolutely no textual support for it anywhere in the Constitution. The words police power do not appear. It's all by implication. And so what happens is 
you do it by implication, and then once the judges clearly decide to enforce these implications along with the statutes, it becomes positive law. Uh, so the fuller position, to some extent, uh, was that when you actually are trying to decide these cases, and you come up with a gap in the way in which the text is organized, uh, like you, for example, have a rule which says anyone can say what he wants, freedom of speech, and then it turns out somebody engages in defamation or character assassination or threats of extortion and so forth, all of a sudden, the police power is always read in, so the thing doesn't become an absurdity. And it is such a powerful, ingrained tradition, we don't forget it. Now, Hart was very suspicious of this. And he, so he said, you know, I don't really like this kind of stuff. But then he wrote a famous caveat in his book called The Concept of Law, and what he called the minimum content of natural law. And his argument is, well, sir, well, I guess you really have to believe that the world rules against murder, theft, and rape, and stuff like that are kind of national. And so I guess they're part of a system. That's a huge concession. And in fact, I wrote a little lecture, it was actually the Hart Lecture about 15 years ago when I gave it at Oxford, and it was called The Not-So-Minimum Content of Natural Law, taking after that position of Hart. Because I'm saying, once you can see that you know, you're know you not allowed to kill somebody, well, you're allowed to wound them. And if you're not allowed to wound them, you're allowed to imprison them. And so it turns out the process of analogy from a given starting point means that the minimum content of law becomes the law if you follow the process of implication that's used elsewhere. And so in that sense, I think everybody turns out to be a natural lawyer. And the fuller point was, if you're a judge and you got yourself a clear text and you're worried about excuses and justifications, which you always are, generally speaking, there are very few of them written into the basic text in any legal system. And so what the Germans used to call der allgemeine Teil, the general part is always read into any specific statute, um, which is open-ended with respect to that. And to that extent, yes, I think everybody's a natural lawyer. Uh, the difference is that most people today are so ignorant of this particular tradition that they have a different way of talking about it, which comes more or less to the same thing of called balancing tests, right? Well, we balance the free right of free press or a free speech or free press with that of a fair tile and so forth. So what you do is you point out two things that are in tension with one another, try to figure out the trade-offs between them, and in doing all of those trade-offs, the balancing test, you essentially have a methodology which is much more natural law-like than its practitioners would acknowledge. I, I'd, like, I'd like to amend my answer to the previous <laughs> question. I'll allow it. I, I'd like to change my least favorite subject from tax to legal philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come well, I'll on. Give you, so, I'll, give you, I'll give you something very tangible then, John. This is, this is John somewhat in a real practice. <laughs> this is a this is somewhat, somewhat inventive question. So this is from a Ricochet member whose handle is uh, MBCHOE. I don't know how or whether I'm supposed to pronounce that, but the question is, if a tariff is a tax and taxes are supposed to originate in the House – Shouldn't all tariffs have to originate in the House? And wouldn't it follow that the president's power to impose tariffs based on national security is unconstitutional? So, so John, what about this? Well, there let's go there first since he's a tax-loving <laughs> tax scholar. This is a variation on the argument about why Obamacare couldn't have been used a tax, too. But Richard? I, I no. think the basic position was when they said that all taxes have to originate in the House as revenue members, I don't think that particular point, given the way the Constitution is organized, uh, that they meant that those revenue measures would include tariffs against foreign goods. I'm not sure about this, um, but I would think of that. Also, I don't think it ultimately matters that much 
because if the Senate wants to introduce something, they could introduce it. The South could then take it up and introduce it under another title and pass it up. It is pretty clear, I think, if you do look at the Constitution in Article 1, Section 1, where they start to talk about the powers of taxation, this is all in the hands of the, of the Congress, not in the hands of the executive branch. And so what happens is there are a bunch of famous cases, which I talk about in part in this little book that I've just written, um, in which how much delegation can you give by Congress to the president to deal with these sorts of issues? And... The answer in most of these cases, the most famous one, perhaps a case called Field and Clark of about 1892, is that if you manage to give some degree of um, guidance about what's going on there, there's going to be no trouble in this particular area. So then what counts as guidance? Well, that case and then a later case called Hampton on the same issue, essentially what the Congress does is it tells the president, we want to impose tariffs. But we don't want to impose tariffs on those people who don't impose tariffs on us, or we only want to impose tariffs so as to equalize the total cost of a good so that a foreign country doesn't get an advantage of having low internal taxes relative to our own. And then you get this mathematical enterprise which talks about these tariff equalization. And in both the cases I'm talking about, uh, the Supreme Court upheld the delegation. And they were absolutely right to do so. Uh, the difficulty that comes is, well, if you can do that, uh, can you then impose, for example, a whole system of price controls by saying to the president, do what you want? I don't think you could do that. There's a famous case called Iacus, which held the other way around. But if you actually look more closely at it, that's not what it held. Uh, the method that it used in order to deal with the price-fixing situation was it says we presumptively set the prices equal to the value at which goods traded, not the contracts formed, but the goods were delivered in the month before the tariffs were imposed. And that covers 90% of the cases. And the delegation, instead of being completely open-ended, now becomes much more limited and much more bounded. So I think the answer is uh, we have done pretty much with tariffs and stuff the things that we ought to do in the classical period. The difficulties when you get to modern times and you give the delegations the sort that Trump has, you start talking about anything dealing with national security, like making Harley-Davidson motorcycles or something like that, and then the power gets much too broad. And somehow or other, between the late New Deal cases or pre-New Deal cases, Hampton was about 1926 or 28, and the more modern cases, uh, the worm turned and delegation became almost plenary, and there's right now in the Supreme Court, the Gundy case and a bunch of other cases in which there's a real question as to the extent to which uh, you're going to put limitations on the so-called delegation principle. Uh, there's been only one year, 1935 and so forth, where two delegations were struck down. Since that time, uh, the anti-delegation forces have, have lost everything. And now in the Supreme Court, it seems along with other things else that's going on administrative law, they're probably going to cut back on that, and you're going to start to see some kind of limitations coming out uh, going forward. What they will I'd, be... In, I'd, like to, work, I'd like to amend my previous two answers <laughs> and switch back I'm to points. tax. <laughs> I'd like to switch back from legal philosophy back to tax is my least favorite subject. Richard. John needs to just not, even, not even the national security aspect of this <laughs> interests you, John? Well, no, I, I actually um, was going to cite the exact same case as Richard Fle oh, Field man. versus Clark. No, Richard was exactly right, but um, I would have just said more briefly that uh, two, 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 two things. One is, as Richard said, yeah, the Constitution says a tax bill has to originate 
in the House, but that means off the Senate often right proposes different tax bills and tax rates. The House just can introduce the same bill word for word, but make it its own bill, or they could just take the Senate bill and just strike it all, and then introduce right. So it, or take a House bill, strike it all, and just insert the Senate text. That's what usually happens in Congress to get a. It's not to get around, but it's just to comply with that provision of the Constitution. But still, the Senate has a big role. And the second point is that. Uh, tariffs uh, may not be formally taxes even under the Constitution, but even if there were, the power to set the exact rate was delegated to the president. Just like a lot of the parts of the IRS code uh, need to have the executive branch fill in uh, different parts. You know, Congress doesn't pass the entire code and all its provisions by statute. And I think that's the same thing that goes on with the tariff laws, is that uh, it may well have been, probably was the case that the House originally uh, enacted the you know the reciprocal tariff laws. Like there's the main one I think is called the T- Trade Expansion Act. Uh, there's a reciprocal trade act and so on. I think those probably did originate in the House, but the person, but the right to put on these tariffs in a reciprocal way based on the responses by other countries is given to the president. and The Supreme Court had held it, as Richard said, against a non-delegation doctrine challenge. So, but I still now am persuaded that I was right originally. Tax is the worst subject. Ah, uh, but you then can't curriculum. do I was. You had me. You know. You had me close there with legal philosophy, which no, I also wait. didn't really enjoy either. But now I'm back to tax again. John, <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try. I'll, I'll try and toggle. Richard, Richard likes the exact classes that I couldn't stand in law school. I'll, I'll, I'll try and toggle over to some some history for you, Joe. We did have a historical question which came in over email, which was, was the Sedition Act? of 1798 unconstitutional. You guys know I generally don't like to hear people disparage John Adams, but he earned it here, so go for it. <laughs> well, the Sedition Act, so remember, originally it was the Alien and Sedition Alien and Sedition Act. And, and the Supreme Court actually never directly ruled on the Sedition Act, though in New York Times versus Sullivan, they discuss it at length, but you know the law had expired by then. So the Sedition Act had essentially made it a crime to criticize the government, but it made truth a defense. And so some people think the Sedition Act was constitutional because it was just putting to effect the standard of uh, libel and defamation law that existed at that time. However, and this is an interesting legal question, constitutional question, is did the enactment of the First Amendment and its protection for free speech and freedom of the press, did it change uh, the regular common law rules about defamation and libel, so made it harder for the government to impose legal sanctions on speech and print uh, than it used to be before. And I, I, so I tend to think New York Times versus Sullivan was right about that, although I wouldn't necessarily say their absence of malice standard. So the First Amendment rule ever t- since New York Times versus Sullivan is that if, say, a newspaper criticizes a government official, even if what they say is wrong, uh, even if they might have known uh, or reasonably would have known that what they were saying is wrong. Um, if there's an absence of malice, you know, if there's no malice behind the mistake, then the government can't punish the newspaper. So I, you know, I'm not sure if that absence of malice standard is the exact is actually the correct standard. I think that the Supreme Court in New York Times versus Sullivan just sort of created it out of thin air. And so I, but I do think the First Amendment creates a higher standard than just the regular defamation and libel. Uh, standards and 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 you, uh, you may remember that in the last Supreme Court term, 
Justice Thomas uh, called for a reexamination of New York Times versus Sullivan. And I think he's being misconstrued by the press, of course, who think that he wants to get rid of the First Amendment. It certainly would make it hard for newspapers and the media to do their business, which is probably why they don't like it. But I think what Thomas is really calling for is just any reexamination. Is this absence of malice test the right test? Maybe it set the bar too high. It gives newspapers and the media too much immunity for what they say, too little responsibility to check on the facts of what they say. Uh, and I, I, I suspect that's probably right. But I would probably also say it's not supposed to go back down to sort of regular common law defamation and libel, oh, on which Richard God. is the expert. Because here's yet another subject. I bet Richard loved in law school, I which did. was and torts, I, I did write which is torts, because I hear you might have even written a book about it. More than one, unfortunately. <laughs> um, I, I, I did write a paper in 1986 called Was New York Times Against Sullivan Wrong, uh, which anticipated by 30 odd years some of the things that Justice Thomas said. And John actually hinted, how does this compare to the common law rules? There are two major sources of the most famous things for the common law rules are there is a famous opinion called Hallam, I think, against the New York Post by Justice Taft. Judge Taft when he was not Justice Taft in the 1890s. And then there was a very nice article, set of articles by Van Vechten Vieter in the 1910 or so Columbia Law Review. And I thought that they had a better balance of it. Uh, so the key distinction that existed under the common law was the distinction between fact and opinion. And it turns out if you made a false statement of fact, then you would be essentially strictly liable for the consequences, which could be a lost election, a lost marriage, a lost business deal, and so forth. Uh, but if, in fact, you expressed an opinion and it turned out that the opinion was wrong, you were generally immune from all liability. So it's either yes or no, nothing in between. So then the question some people ask is, well, how do you figure out what is a statement of fact and what is a statement of opinion? And what Vita did, it was a very clever article, is he said, look, if I'm going to say, John, you is a thief, uh, that is going to be a statement of fact. And if he's not a thief, wait, I'm wait, wait respond. a second. What do you mean, statement of fact? Well, I mean, well, it may <laughs> really be it's a assertion of fact, and it may be false. <laughs> but if you say as following, John, you is a thief, because when I saw him go into the cupboard, he had this funny look on his face. His hands were empty when he came out. There was a glinty gold bar in his hand, which he stuck into his pocket. I threw that to be a thief. The argument that he made, which was later picked up by actually Bob Bork, amongst others, um, was that so long as you lay the factual predicate out uh, for, on which your particular judgment rests, then the audience could decide whether to go pro or con on that. Uh, but if, in fact, what you do is you have the actual malice landed, then you have cases of people who say things that are devastatingly wrong, understood to be wrong, often things that were wrong and wrong with carelessness, and there's no redress. And when you're starting to talk about defamation, this is a very old tort because the harms are very serious. I tell Troy Senek that John is unreliable and John gets fired from law. Well, now that's talk. a statement of fact. <laughs> if I do, and it's false statement of fact. I mean, people lose their positions, they lose their marriages, they lose their jobs, they lose all sorts of things. So even in go back to your favorite subject on Roman law, uh, defamation was not fully worked out, but it was certainly part of it. And then, just as I mentioned before, every time you have a prima facie case, you defame me to X. You get this implied set of natural law defenses dealing with public statements with privileges, public and private, and so forth, um, so as to make it into a general system. And the objection, the New York Times, 
the interesting thing about it is the circulation that the New York Times had for its Sunday paper in which they had this famous ad, He There Riding Voices, was about 120 people. And Bull Connor, who was not mentioned in this ad, said when they talked about the police and made some trivial mistakes as to where they were located, they really hurt me. He became a folk hero in Alabama, for whatever it's worth, and they should pay me $500,000. Everyone who's uh, a hero in Alabama is a folk hero, by yes, definition. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, they're going to they're bankrupt the New York Times by phony defamation laws. And interestingly enough, there's a federal jurisdiction question there, because the New York Times tried to remove the case from state court into federal court, but since they had joined the local distributor under the laws of the time, they had to do it there. And the state Supreme Court upheld it. So when you got to the United States Supreme Court, Alex Bickle argued the case for the New York Times. And what they discovered was either you have a First Amendment hook on this thing or we've got no ways to go after them. So what Brennan did is he said, look, I don't think the statement is of and concerning. And I think the damages are excessive. And if he had just stuck with those two, he would have gotten rid of the New York Times case. But he then went and added as a third ground the actual malice standard. And when I wrote my 1986 article, I said, I think on this point, the other two things are correct. But I prefer the solution of both the English common law and the situation that was created by Judge Taft in Hallam and also in the general academic literature of the time. So I have some sympathy for that. But it's not as though you want to get rid of it. It's the question is in all of these things is do you get the nuances right when it turns to doctrinal salt? subtleties. It's not the question of yes or no. And interestingly enough, if you take a textual view only of the First Amendment, you can't figure out whether you're talking about statements of fact or opinion, privilege, and so forth. That's why you need the four-type approach and the sort of standard Roman and common law and civil law type approach about a general part of legal systems informing particular constitutional texts. I just love that you think, Richard, that I have the authority to fire John. There's been no investiture here. I just Wait, walked into no. a room and started doing this eight and a half I've, years ago, and I've been stuck like, in this look, purgatory ever since. I've got lifetime tenure. You know, it's not just justices who are afraid of term limits around. <laughs> no, 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 no. You Come have lifetime now. tenure at Berkeley. You don't have it on law talk. Guys. Oh, you, well, you, you and I are the founders. Oh, no, this is strictly at will. This is strictly at will. Our 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 successors will look back and try to figure out our intent about this podcast. (laughs) Come on, Richard. Richard. Give yourself more credit. So so, here's God. As usual, there's just no good way to extricate myself from this. So here's going to be my final question. All right. For some reason, uh, food has come to occupy a disproportionate focus of the show. It's mostly John and his McRibs. Look, food uh, is a disproportionate part of your physique, uh, too. (laughs) That is very true. (laughs) We also used to talk a lot about the Carnegie (laughs) Deli. May it rest in peace. So I I will end on this note, uh, this question, rather. The food you absolutely hate. The food that if it's the only thing on offer for dinner, you will go to sleep hungry. Uh, Anything from the ocean. Is that right? I would not I don't like fish. I don't like shellfish. Well, I don't mean it's not like bad inherently, but <laughs> if you could eat a swordfish steak or just a steak steak, it's not even close. The steak tastes so much better. So I don't just don't see why people choose all this. But you know, if we get Greenland, maybe more Americans will have to eat fish and other, you know, little things that swim in the ocean. But not me. I'm not moving to Greenland even when climate change occurs. I'm certainly not going to try to restrict America's production of beef pork and chicken just because their emanations into the penumbras of the air seem to be causing global warming 
And we have, did you see that report that we all have to stop eating things that uh, taste good in order to stop global warming? It's ridiculous. Uh, I'm not going out there to graze like an animal. The temperature <laughs> changes of these things are point oh 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 one percent that you don't even know which direction. I, I am going to go uh, down yeah, to the bitter end to defend pastrami. Well, yes, but let me now. I, that's now, a hell of a hill to die on, John. <laughs> Look, I'm with John on pastrami, but, you know, I said I never found a law course I didn't like, right? Yeah. But I never said I found a food I didn't like. And I have a long well, and distinct. Uh, I have a long and distinguished list of foods that I do not like. Start with lima uh, beans. Lima beans are a classic. And then you oh, throw, incorrect, John. Oh, I love then, lima beans. Then you throw in Brussels sprouts. Oh, Brussels sprouts are great too. Now, and in fact, one of the great signs of differences in my marriage is my wife, six nights out of seven, will eat asparagus, and six nights out of seven, I won't touch them. You don't um, like asparagus? Uh, wait, actually, you just don't like any vegetables. No, no, I like carrots. I like cucumbers, sort of. I, I, I like. Uh, <laughs> okay, so you I just like, like long skinny vegetables, tomatoes and, but you and, hate bushy vegetables. No, I just don't like. <laughs> I mean, to me, it's all a matter of a. I like stream beans. Uh, See, sweet. long skinny. I well, figured out your rule yes. of decision. Well, no, that long and skinny has to do with property rights, not with streaming. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, I think everybody's entitled not to like some foods. Uh, the question is, can you increase your palate as you start to get older? Um, I'm sadly deficient in that regard. I have one <laughs> important exception, however. Okay. If you go to a truly great restaurant, which I do without fail every decade, it doesn't matter what <laughs> It's all good. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I was I was going to tell Wait, you. Wait, Troy, what's your answer? What do you uh, not like? Uh, the correct answer is stew. Well, but stew is not a food; it's a combination. That's exactly the point, John. Because the 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 mad genius, I guess, who um, no, what we should be clear wait, about wait, this: wait, the wait, psychopath wait. who decided that this was a viable culinary option wait, was wait, somebody so who was somebody who took eat, you would eat all the foods if they were not put together: carrots onions beef tomatoes but put them together and you won't eat them correct sometimes that the sum no is less than the parts of the whole it does and i'll tell you why because the no <laughs> because the psychopath who did this said let me take meat a good thing i'm with you on this john a, a good thing in all times and places except for this one let me take vegetables a necessary thing let me necessary them, evil necessary let me put evil. them together and make them soggy and give somebody an entree with the consistency of a peat bog, and we will consider this food fit for human consumption. I find this disagreeable. Oh, stew is one of the great foods. It's probably the first human food. They got fire, and then they stuck all the hunter-gatherer Listen stuff to what you're saying. Do pot. you not want to evolve beyond that? Are there are there other you know habits of that generation of American, of American history, world <laughs> no, history? Really. Now, by no, the way, there's an intermediate so. position here, gentlemen. Oh, God, there shouldn't be. Well, Go ahead. No, that's I mean, for example, let me ask you the following. I'm going to ask you the following question. Tomorrow right. night we're having a beef kebab for dinner. Is that a stew or non-stew food? It is a non-stew, non -stew. and I'll tell you why. I will tell you why, because the ingredients are severable. Ah, that's the right <laughs> test. <laughs> so, so essentially, if, if you, a stew requires that you're having some kind of a sauce, right? Can I can I change my it's answer? Base, it's not yes. tax. I'm not I, my worst course now is not tax. It's not going to be legal philosophy. It's food law because I can't believe Richard <laughs> is creating legal that. tests that define no, wait, this, a what I a kebab that. is a stew. What is it? John, I teach, 
teach food law. How dare you say? <laughs> I I didn't even know there was such a course. I was well, you teach kidding. it in the connection with the FDA with Food and oh. Drug Act. And so then you have this question of what you do with various kinds of herbal supplements and so forth. Oh, you're right. Own. You're right. Food law right. would be my And, you know, the receipt your food, then you don't have to have preclearance by the FDA. If you're a drug, you do. But how do you know whether something is a food or a drug? Can you tell by looking at it? The answer is no. So is cigarettes a drug? Well, if you say that they have a curative property, then the answer is yes. But if you say they don't, that at least before Brown and Williamson, the answer was no. Afterwards, it's a little uncertain. So I gotta say, it's a great know, it's a there, great course. There are a lot of elements of the show that I really enjoy, but none probably as much as watching John's will to live just decline gradually throughout the course of the hour. <laughs> that was very enjoyable. I know you're ruining so many things for me. Now I can't <laughs> think of Stu in the same way. Oh, I love Stu. Well, I think somebody's got to, John. You know, the answer is, food is this food. is why we have freedom of choice. So that John is not bound at the ankles to Troy, nor Troy and John bound to me. Each of us go to the market, buy our own ingredients, separate bullet together, and make them the way we want. So this conversation explains why it is that the capitalist system beats the socialist system. I'm going to put a button in that right there. That is a perfect place to end us, fellas. That is our show. Uh, gentlemen, thank you as always to both of you. Thanks to our producer, Scott Immergett, to the Hoover Institution. And, of course, thanks to our great listeners and the people who are just here for the satanic messages embedded backwards in the recording. Remember to help us out by rating the show at iTunes. We'll see you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. I can't keep up with what's been going down Just be slowing down Spaceships to America, the beautiful. They land at six o'clock, and there we are, the dutiful. Eating from TV trays, tuned into happy days, waiting for World War Three while Jesus slays to the mating calls of lawyers. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.